You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Good morning, church. If you have a Bible, grab it. Turn to Psalm 19. Yes, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here and have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. And uh, we are going to continue in our series through uh, multiple psalms this summer, which we titled uh, Summer Through the Psalms. And uh, if you're a guest today, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say. We want to see what he has revealed to us. We want to know how we are to respond to him. And that's why every week we come to the Bible and we want to study it and know it. That's why we preach from it every Sunday. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one in front of you in the pew. And uh, you can grab that, turn to page 480, and follow along with us. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we would love for you to take that with you, uh, take it home today. Uh, that We uh, hope that you will take that as a gift uh, from us. And if it's possible that we have folks in the room who are not believers today, we want you to know that you are welcome here. We are thankful that you've decided to worship with us. And we want you to know that this is a safe place to ask questions. And it's particularly as we come to Psalm 19, it's a, it's a place for you to see how God has revealed himself, how God has shown who, who he is and what he's done. And I pray that you will experience that even this morning. And as we start, uh, there's a question uh, in, the, in my mind this week as we look at Psalm 19, and it would be, how do we know that God is there? Is he there? How can we know him? How can we actually believe in him? In all that goes on in our world today, the question, is God there, may be uh, the, one of the most relevant questions we have to ask. It may be one of the most relevant questions we have to answer. Because if God is there, then what does that mean for us? And so the question, is God there? And if he is, what should we do is what we should ask coming to Psalm 19. Because not only are we going to see in Psalm 19 that God has revealed Himself, He's revealed Himself very clearly, and there's a way in which we are to respond to Him, a way in which we are called to submit our lives to Him. It isn't just that the God of the universe is there, there is a way in which we submit our lives to Him and follow Him. There's a way in which we experience Him, a way in which we are loved by Him, a way in which we walk in Him, as the Apostle Paul says. And Psalm 19 is just a picture of what God has done to show us exactly who He is. And so as we walk through the passage this morning, here are a couple things that I want you to know. God has revealed Himself so that the world may see, but He has revealed Himself in the Scripture so that the world may be saved if you're a disciple today what what are you supposed to do as a church we talk about making mature disciples people who are growing in our faith not stagnant not falling behind but growing ever closer to the lord and to each other so that we may look like jesus when god calls us home so what should we do we can join the skies and the scriptures as they glorify god by responding to his revelation. 
Not only should we know that God has revealed Himself, we should then respond to it. And as we walk through the passage, we're going we're to think about those things. How do we actually respond to it? And you're going to notice that this psalm is broken up into two very distinct parts. Some might uh, even think that, that these uh, were actually two psalms put together. I don't, I don't think that's the case. I think this is one psalm. And what you see here is that they both testify to the revelation of God. That God reveals Himself, one, in nature, that is the sky, and two, He reveals Himself in the Scriptures, which is where God speaks to us. This is His Word. This is what we call the Bible. That God has revealed Himself here. And so these two parts, they break up for us how we can know that God has revealed Himself. And so as we walk through the text this morning, what we're going to see is I want to show you three observations about God's revelation. Three observations about God's revelation. So, number one, the skies reveal God's general revelation. The skies reveal God's general revelation. Look back there at verse one. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. As David begins here, he starts with a broad statement. The heavens. All right, so what are the heavens? What does, what does he mean by that? He's talking about the sky, the expanse, the sky, and all that's in it. The moon, the sun, the stars, the planets. It is this sky that we see above us. It declares, it shows the ongoing revelation of God. Right, these objects in the sky are products of our God's creative power and they are beautiful and they show us the grandeur of our God if you think about a shooting star if you think about those bright stars at night or you think about the beauty of a sunset this displays something crucially important for us that we we didn't make that and if that was made then how did that happen the glory of God is revealed in a way that shows us that God is distinctly other than we are. He is vastly different than we are. He is not human. He was not created. But He is the Creator. In fact, the language of the heavens points us back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And just to say... Genesis chapter 1 shows us that this book is not about the creation account, but it's about the God who created. Oftentimes we get it mixed up and we think that this Bible is about us, when in fact it's about the God of the universe who created us. And often people in our modern age, they try to dismiss this very simple claim that is made in the Bible. That God is creator and that he has made everything. They believe that, the, that creation, the world, the universe, everything we see came into existence by happenstance. They, they believe in a science without God, which does not make sense. Science is possible because there is a good creator who has made everything for us. Science started after Christ came. So science actually is a product of us 
knowing and being told about who God is. If we see a world that is out there as a creator, then we can study it, we can know it, we can look at it. Unfortunately, though, for folks who make this mistake to believe that this happened by happenstance, it's the same mistake that, the, that folks in the pre-Christ actually thought that this was all myths or legends or, what, or they believed in certain gods. These are all other ways to explain that there maybe is not just one God. We dismiss the power of the one true God, whether it's with science or with mythology, we must dismiss those and submit ourselves to how He's revealed Himself in the Bible. As Christians, we know this one true God. We know that He has created. And we can then rejoice in Him and therefore glorify Him. When we know that He is Creator, we can trust Him and we can rejoice and then we can glorify Him. We're able to see that God's handiwork in the skies because, look at verse 2, they pour out speech and they communicate knowledge. The skies are speaking a message and that message is bubbling up like a spring, constantly pouring out knowledge. And this message communicates the Creator's creative mind. We see the beauty that God has made. But also notice this message is a constant day after day and night after night. There is an unbroken chain of communication by what God has created. And David, the psalmist, has spent time, you can think about this, he spent time gazing into the night. He sees the stars. He sees the moon. He sees the planets. And out into the sky, he sees just how beautiful and wonderful the creation of God actually is. And maybe, maybe we, when we see out into the night, we see much more than we do in the daylight. That the night actually reveals that God, look at all that God has made that is separate from us. Continue in verse 3. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. It is clear that the skies present a message, this idea of a voice, but it's quiet. It's silent, this message is. Right, so David says there is no speech. This is a paradox. It doesn't quite make sense. But, the, but it's clear that there may not be a sound in the sky, but the message that it communicates rings loudly. The point is, even though we do not hear the message with our ears, we see it with our eyes. This is important. As verse 4 tells us, this message has been proclaimed to the ends of the world. No one can escape the revelation of God, right? We all, as we live on this planet, whatever part we're on, we all look up to the sky and we see either the sun, the moon, or the stars. We cannot get away from it. No one can escape it. This revelation is all-encompassing and available to everyone, meaning that this revelation is not denied to anyone on the planet. There are plenty of opportunities for people to see that God has revealed Himself. We see this in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. It's going to be on the screen for you. For God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all ungodlessness and unrighteousness of people who by 
their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, and because God has shown it to them, for His invisible attributes, that is His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what He has made. And as a result, people are without excuse. The Apostle Paul picks up on the message of Psalm 19. That there is no escape, there is nothing, there is no reason to believe other than there is a God who has revealed Himself in creation, and particularly in the skies. The question is not, is there a God, or is there a message to be heard or seen? There is, the question is, do we want to hear it? Do we want to receive it? That's the question. And I was thinking, as, as we think about the sky, we think about this message, what are some amazing handiworks of people you may know or people you may, may have seen or famous folks? We can, we can think about this. There, there are uh, buildings, the architecture that people, uh, that people have. Uh, Ash and I, a, a few years ago, uh, we went to uh, Italy and we were in Florence and it's this stone city and uh, it was a beautiful small town in Italy and we saw the, the architecture. There was a huge cathedral there. I mean, it was beautiful. Whoever made this was astonishing. I, I couldn't do that. Or maybe you, you think of a grand clock, a grandfather clock. You think about the detail that's inside of that clock. It takes a lot of creativity and intelligence to put that clock together and make it run and make it beautiful. Uh, you may even think about computers. If we think about how computers, and now that you know, we're carrying them in our, in our pockets and our, our phones, but computers have... have uh, have boards and circuits and all kinds of things that make it run. The, the intelligence behind this is astonishing in what we've been able to do over the past 30 years. These are some amazing pieces of handiwork and they display the ability of the handyman or the creator of these items. But if God is the ultimate creator, then what's his, what is one of His greatest works? Verse 4 tells us the sun is. Look there at the end of verse 4. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running its course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. When we think about the sun, there are lots of detail we could, we could throw out there. right? The sun is a burning ball of gas. Who would have thought about that? Uh, not me. So God creates this, this star, this sun that burns gas and it and provides heat for us. The sun's also, it's also a specific distance away from the earth. It's 93.2 million miles away. In any slight variation in that, we would either burn up or we would freeze to death. It provides heat so that we can survive. The sun is a, an amazing piece of God's creation, but only one piece of God's creation. The sun is not just an amazing piece, but also it represents the kind of message that the skies actually proclaim. The sun sees all, and no one can escape the sun. It doesn't matter where you are on the planet, you cannot escape the heat or the light from the sun. Just like the eternal message that the creation of God is saying to us. We cannot escape it. We cannot, we cannot get around it. And look how David describes the sun. He said, 
the sun is uh, pitched in a tent. That is, it has a beautiful backdrop. It has a pavilion that is surrounding it. The sun is able to be seen like a, a groom running from his home, but running from his home to what? Running to his bride. That's the sun is coming through. It's running beautifully to his uh, bride. And it's like an athlete, literally this idea of a strong man in a competition. Right? You see that this athlete is running the race and you see them working to, to finish that race. I want you to notice the publicness of these, these two ideas, these two images. They're things not done in, in, in the dark, they're done in the open. Right? I, I don't, we don't compete uh, in somewhere where it's just us. We want people to see us. We, when we have weddings, we have weddings so that people can rejoice and see, hey, these people are being married. The emphasis is on a celebration. The emphasis is on something happening. It's impossible to miss the event of the sun moving from the east to the west. But think about it this way. You cannot miss God's revelation. So, how should the skies, or what He's made in the sky, how should it cause us to respond? We need to see it. What I mean by that is we need to see it with our eyes. We need to recognize it, and then we need to ponder it. We actually need to think about, why is that there? And then we need to marvel. Then we need to marvel at God's creation. There's a lot of distractions. There's all kinds of shows you can binge on Netflix, and there's all things you, you can busy yourself with. But if you just go outside and sit and look at what God has done, the only thing we can do is marvel. Ash and I were at the beach last weekend, and we look at the ocean and we're like, wow, I, I, I lose myself, right? No one comes to the ocean or to the Grand Canyon and views the beauty of these things and says, Look how awesome I am. No one does that. Right? You don't stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon and say, that's a pretty cool crater. I'm really, go really cool today. Like, no one thinks that, right? Because we see the grandeur and the beauty of what God has done. And so when we see and when we marvel, we begin to praise God for what He's done. Right? We see and we, we think, God, what, what an awesome thing You have done. We praise Him for what He has done in the world. So God has revealed Himself in the skies. Right? And we can join them in praising Him. But is that enough? Is that enough? Let's move into the, to the second section. Our second observation. The Scriptures reveal God's specific revelation. The Scriptures reveal God's specific revelation. Now we move from the general to the specific, right? God's Word. The splendor of God's natural revelation leaves me without excuse, but it is not enough to convert me. It's not enough to make me a follower of Christ. It's not enough to make me holy. We need more than the skies or the sun to tell me how to be reconciled to God. Because if we look, I know that Pastor Ryan talked about this last week, if we look at the events of our world, if we look at what's going on, we notice that something is deeply wrong. Something is wrong with this world. What is the solution to that? God reveals that to us in His Word. 
And what he reveals to us is that we can be reconciled to Jesus, which reconciles us to each other. And when we give our lives to Christ, we actually lay open, hey God, we are submitting ourselves to you so that we can be reconciled and forgiven and saved. And then we are able to be reconciled to others. But it gets more personal. The word used for God in verses 1 through 6 is the, the normal term that would just, it could almost describe any God. It's the least specific word for God in the Hebrew language that David uses. But now David uses God's name. He uses the Lord, Yahweh, in the rest of the chapter. And I think that's important because not only has God revealed himself in the skies, there is one true God. There is a God who also revealed himself as Yahweh, the Lord, to the Israelites. He has given him the, his word. And so God, he's revealed himself in the scriptures. We believe that the Bible is fully God's word. If you've been here for any amount of time, I hope you've seen me hold this Bible up and tell you, we believe that this is God's word. It's perfect. It's infallible. It's inerrant. Yes, it was written down by men, but we understand that God is the one who has provided it. We don't think that the narratives in the Bible are made up. We don't think they're myths. We believe them. Because this is how he's revealed himself to us. Let me explain. What, what do other folks think about this? Peter, the Apostle Peter, he says in 1 Peter 1.20, I think this is going to be on the screen for you, above all you know this, no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter believes that God's Word is inspired by him. What, is, what does the Apostle Paul think? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 say that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Paul believes that it's God. He makes up this new word. He said, when we say it's inspired, it's this idea of God breathing the Scriptures out. He makes up a word just to explain that God is the one who's providing the Scriptures. So that's two apostles. But what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? He says in Matthew 5, in one of his greatest sermons, he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For I, I tell you, until the heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all the law is accomplished. Jesus believed in the, the power of God's word. He says in, in, in John 10 that the scriptures cannot be broken. Jesus says in John 17, he, when he's praying to God about us, his followers, he says, cleanse them in your word, which is truth. In your truth, keep them. Jesus believes that it's God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. And then what does he do in Luke chapter 24 when after he's been resurrected, he comes to the disciples and he, he rebukes them and he begins to teach them, do you not know the law, the writings, and the prophets? Do you not know the Old Testament well enough that they point to me? They reveal me. And so we believe that this is God's word. We believe that this is how God has revealed himself to us. 
And so it's going to be beautiful. David, what he does, he, he has nine specific ways that he expounds on the beauty and the power of God's revelation, particularly in the Bible. They, they don't differ that much, but they have different characteristics. And uh, what I want you to see is that they're different, almost like a diamond. And so I want to bring these differences out. We're going to run through these. Start there in verse 7. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. This first statement stands in many ways over the following eight. The instruction of the Lord is God's law, His Scripture, and it reveals His will to those who follow Him. And this law, the Scriptures, they are perfect. It means that they are whole, complete. They do not have a defect. And it's this wholeness that all other characteristics find their basis. But what does this perfect law do? It renews our lives. Meaning it restores our souls. It puts us back together. It reconciles us. It places where we are to belong. And it refreshes us. Think of Romans 12, 2 again. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We find new life in God's Word. He continues, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The law of God is His testimony. It's His actual witness. And its truth is attested by God Himself. The, this testimony is trustworthy, meaning it's verifiable and it's firm. We can trust it for our lives. Often people see God's Word as rules. Right? That's a correct understanding. But they miss what God is really doing. He's showing us that true life. He shows us how to actually flourish in this world. I want you to think about a fish. Right, a fish uh, breathes underwater. But is that fish confined to the water? Like, Could you take the fish out of the water? Absolutely. But what happens to that fish when you do that? It dies. It can't survive. It's the same idea. That yes, we, we may see these, that God's word is, is like rules, but really, what we're saying is that it's best for our lives. It's trustworthy testimony that provides wisdom to us. It shows us that it's not just a list of do's and don'ts, but rather that God's uh, word impacts us. Uh, imparts wisdom to us so that we know how to live. We need this wisdom. God is concerned about how we make decisions, just as much about the decisions that we make. And we need this wisdom because it's true and trustworthy and firm. We have a freedom in God's Word to live the way He's set out for us. Think of Psalm 1. The man is planted like a tree beside flowing waters. The one who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. David continues in verse 8, The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. Speaking of rules, precepts, they provide this kind of thought. They are statutes or a guide for living, but they are for precise living. Are they not vague? They're not hard to understand? Why? Because they are right meaning they are never wrong. They are accurate. And these right precepts bring joy and make the heart glad. John Piper said this, God is not a killjoy. He's just opposed to what actually kills joy. 
We have a world right now telling us, this is where you find joy. Just, just be yourself. That's the underlying message of our world today. And we say, well, you can't confine, don't confine me to that. But what God's word says is he says, no, I actually know what joy is. And I'm going to provide the environment for you to actually experience that joy. Because I know, he says, I know that these things will actually kill you. God is not a kill joy. God knows what joy actually is. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The command of the Lord, that is, it demonstrates authority. It isn't just, okay, that, that's some really cool things to say. No, this is authoritative. God's word should be obeyed, and it must be obeyed to find true life. And these commands are not dark or shadowed. And again, they bring understanding so that we can know how to live in the light. What does the Apostle John say? In John, uh, 1 John 1, he says that be like Jesus who is in the light. Meaning he is visible. He is out there. We can know him. We can, we can enter the light with him. He also says in his gospel account that Jesus is the light. And that light is now being, being revealed. And so we find the light to be actually able to walk out this way. And we know that Jesus is out there in front of us. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The description is different than the other eight as it seems to be coming from a human perspective. Right? It's the human response to the word. Fear. Fear of the Lord means to humble ourselves. It doesn't mean to be afraid in the scared sense. It means to humble ourselves, be loyal, and depend uh, fully on God's word. Uh, we understand the authority of God's word. And it's pure. That means it's clean. It has the ability to make us clean. It washes us whiter than snow. It makes us ethically moral. It makes us live righteously. This fear will also never end. Meaning we can count on it. We can believe it. Because it will never change. It is never out of season or out of style. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. Finally, these ordinances or judgments, you might think, are reliable. That is, they are dependable. They're not flaky. I, I, I guess I'd be considered a millennial. And if I'm honest with you, I think a lot of millennials are flaky. If they find something better, they'll go do it. Even if they said, hey, I'm going to come to your house, and they can just go somewhere else and do something else. I was not raised that way. I struggle with folks who are like that. But God's word is not flaky. Not flaky at all. And they are certainly never false. They stand as a standard for righteousness for us. We can trust them. We can know them. Now, as we, we walk through those nine, I want you to see that these nouns, right? you saw nouns and adjectives and verbs. Right, these nouns show that the practical purpose of Revelation is to bring God's will to bear on us who hears it and invoke a response, a reverence, a well-founded trust, and detailed obedience. The adjectives are the opposite of the world's compromise, of its insecurity, insincerity, and half-truths. And these verbs demonstrate true the true transforming power of the Word of God. And now these last three, as we continue in verse 10, these, these last three are different than the first six. 
Right, as they now describe God's word using imagery to captivate, but really to prove a point. Look at verse 10. They are more desirable than gold. They're more, the, the, their abundance of pure gold and sweeter than honey dripping from the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in, in keeping them there is an abundant reward. David said that, the, that God's word is more desirable than gold. It's valuable and priceless. Nothing in the world can compare to it. Then he says it's sweeter than honey. Right, so honey was the, the simplest pleasure of the day. They didn't just come by it. This was a thing that they, it was something they wanted. It was something they, that they, if they could got their hands on it, they were going to eat it. If you're thinking about it today, uh, what would be that kind of, of honey? Well, for me, it would be Reese's eggs. That Reese's eggs are the best thing that you can get your hands on as a dessert. And probably Sundrop. Sundrop on the western side of the state. These are the kind of things, if you can get your hands on, you're going to eat them. And if you think that anything else is better than Reese's eggs, then you're just wrong. Okay? So, these are the things that we... David says, they're sweeter. The honey is so sweet, but the Bible is sweeter. That means the Bible is a, is a sweetener to our souls. The Bible, the Bible satisfies our desires. That's what David is saying. It satisfies us. But it also warns us. It alerts us to sin. It's like an alarm system. Ash and I, we, we have a ring alarm system, and when you open the door when it's armed, it you know, gives us a timer. You know, someone's opened it, you know, the door or whatever, and we've got we to cut it off. That's what God's Word is. That when you read it, there's an alarm. Hey, hold up, something's wrong. When we come to God's Word, and we, if we always think, wow, that sounds really good. Or, you know, I, I know Joe, he really needs that. If we never come to God's Word, there's no alarm in our own hearts, then we're not reading, we're not giving ourselves to God's Word. And then David said it rewards us. It brings great reward. Do we see what God's Word really is? And the question is now, do we desire it the same way that David here describes God's Word? Do we desire to give ourselves to God's Word? There's so many distractions. There's so much going on. There's so many things we can be anxious about. So many things we can give our lives to that can be good. But do we desire God's Word more than anything else in the world. That's what this leaves us with. Do you desire to read it and to know who God is because He's revealed Himself here? God has revealed Himself not only in the skies, but also in the Scriptures. So then how best do we glorify Him? It brings us to our third observation. Servants respond to God's transforming revelation. Servants respond to God's transforming revelation. There's a specific purpose that God's Word has. It's to cultivate God's people, to change them and transform them into the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what this Bible does. And that begins with fighting sin. Look at verse 12. Who perceives his unintentional sin? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. This first aspect of fighting sin that David addresses is his hidden sin. He starts by asking, who perceives, who understands his own sin? 
Sin becomes too characteristic of us and we find ourselves asking, did I do that again? Did I really give in to that sin again? This is what we do when we don't feel the nature, the true nature of our own sin. In many ways, our sin, it fools us or it lulls us to sleep. Understand as well as these hidden sins are not to say we're hiding them from others, although that's possible. What David is saying is that they're even unknown to us. We don't even know that there are sins that we are committing. And so David says, he says, may you cleanse me from them. May, we need God's word because we need to be, it needs to be revealed to us where we can grow, where we have sinned against God and others. This is why God's word is so important. Without it, we would let, be left with no standard. We would not have a law. But God's word is not just a list of, of rules to follow. Remember, God's revelation is specific to make us into Jesus Christ. And so it shows us how to respond. Verse 13, moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule over me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from my blatant rebellion. This second aspect of sin is to fight it. This outright blatant rebellion against God. We may know the truth. We may know God's word. We just don't care. We are willfully defying God in our own arrogance. We must not just fight hidden sins. But the urge to do whatever we think is best. We must fight the urge to be so stubborn that we want what we want. Because if we're really honest, in those times of sin, when we know that it's not God's desire for us, we know it's not going to be, it's not going to bring joy. We know that it's going to harm us or others. Even in those times, and we desire God more than whatever we think that sin may bring to us. We are to give ourselves over to God's word because it has the power to cleanse us. It has the power to wash us, to make us pure, to clean us. It makes us look like God's word. Notice that God's word, remember, is pure. It's clean. The effect that this has on my life is that it makes me look like Jesus every day that I give myself to it. It's not just going to fill my head with knowledge. It's not just about I know all the right things to say, but actually my life looks like the Word says. Our culture wants and is actively rebelling against God. It always has. Right? We see, it's easy to see that out there, right? But if we're really honest, so do we. So do we. If we're really honest with ourselves, we can talk about all the stuff out there, but if we're really honest, if we just come and focus on the folks that are in this room, if I focus on myself, I do too. But the Scriptures warn us and teach us that God's wrath is being poured out on sin. It was poured out on Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer today, let, let, let me just tell you, there's, there's some horrible news that God's wrath will be poured out on sin. But here's the good news. It was poured out on Jesus in your place. And so now, now what we have to do is now respond to the work of Christ. That Yes, it was poured out on Him on the cross. He was, he was killed. He was buried. But He was raised three days later. 
the story of the gospel reminds us that there is a punishment for sin, but that there is great mercy. That God offers us the opportunity to know Him through Jesus and to submit our lives to Him in a way that makes us holy. It enables us to receive mercy. And let me just be really honest. If you are finding yourself today saying, God can't forgive me for that. Jesus hangs uh, on the cross beside a thief. He restores Peter who denied him. He forgave tax collectors and sinners. There is nothing, nothing that you can do that God is not offering you mercy anyway because He loves you. But what's this last, this third way to res- that servants are to respond to God's Word? True sacrifice. A sacrifice from the heart. Look at verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want you to notice how this psalm ends. Right? With the right kind of sacrifice towards God. If you don't know much about the Old Testament, the first five books, there's a lot of those first five books that are talking about God's way to sacrifice, to atone for sin. But David here says, and as he does in other psalms, may the sacrifice be my, my heart. May it be acceptable to you. Transformation leads to action that glorifies God. But our actions must be tied to a heart transformation. This is what we talk about as we talk about making mature disciples, that we are disciples being transformed by the power of the gospel We will not be able to honor God with our words or meditation if it's not coming from God's Word. If it's not able to form us or challenge us, even contradict us or renew us, breathe life into us. We must give ourselves to God's Word. But the question remains, can we even do this? If you're like me and you look at this, you're like, can I even do that? Not without God's help. And specifically not God's help in Christ. The scripture, the scriptures, they are God's revelation for salvation into Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way to salvation. And as he says in John 14, he is the way to salvation. And also, just as a reminder, if you look at verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10. Those adjectives that describe God's Word all describe Christ. All of them. And so, although when we look at God's Word, we're like, I don't know if I can do that. But when we look at Jesus, and we look to Him, and look to what He offers us, then we can say, I give myself to you. And what what happens there is that Jesus begins to make us all those adjectives that David listed here. Pure and clean, trustworthy and right. That in Jesus we find the ability to actually be what God has called us to be. We will not, we will not be able to do this on our own. You will not be able to come to God's word and think, I can do all that. You won't be able to do it. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's revelation. 
Jesus is the culmination. It's what the Bible was pointing to. It's the end that we see Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as our Redeemer. My prayer for us today is that we see Jesus for who He is. That yes, we see the skies and the beauty that God has made and, and, and the other, other parts of Scripture said that Jesus was involved in making those things. And that we see God's Word and we trust it and we give ourselves to it. But not in a way to check it off. But in a way that we submit our lives to Jesus and say, help me be what your Word describes. That's my prayer today. Together. God, I ask you to make us into the people that you desire, that we would glorify you, that we would respond in true heart worship, that we would give ourselves to you, that we would submit ourselves to your word because we know that you are the grand creator. And that you are Yahweh who revealed yourself to Israel. That you are God who sent Christ into the world to save us from our sin. You are our Father who, cared, who cares deeply for us. May we trust you today. May we trust your word. And may we live by it. May it shape us and mold us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.